Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect program. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session and instructions will follow at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the program, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. And as a reminder, this program is being recorded. At this time, I would like to introduce your moderator for today's program, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Thank you very much, Mary, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect, the sixth annual Cancer Survivorship Series, Living With, Through, and Beyond Cancer. And this is part one, and the title of today's workshop is The Importance of Communicating with Your Doctor About Follow-Up Care. It's a very, very important topic, and we're going to hear a lot about it during this next hour. Now, today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care, the National Cancer Institute, Office of Cancer Survivorship and Office of Communications and Education, the Lance Armstrong Foundation, the Intercultural Cancer Council, Living Beyond Breast Cancer, and National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship. And it is that, co that actually collaboration that has really enabled us to reach so many of you. And we have on the call today over 1,731 participants on the call today. So I want you all to take a bow. It's a real credit to each of you that you have joined us today to spend the next hour with us to hear about this topic. Most of you are coming from the United States. You come from large cities and small cities, from rural and suburban communities and frontier communities, and we also have participants from Canada and the United Kingdom. So you really come from all over the world, and you really are a group of information seekers. I'd like to turn your attention for a moment to the materials that you receive from Cancer Care. In those materials, there's an outline that our speakers have prepared, and there's lots of information about all of the collaborating organizations and all of the different services that they offer and programs. And I particularly want to call your attention to the National Cancer Institute uh, Facing Forward series, which is a wonderful series. If you don't have that, do access that. It's just a wonderful um, information. And you'll be hearing more about the different pieces of information as we go on. Now, also in uh, your materials, there is an evaluation form. And I would really like to ask you each to take a moment and complete that evaluation form. Who but each of you can best tell us what programs and topics you would like to offer, that you would like us to offer in future programs? So please um, give us your thoughts, your recommendations. We base the topics that we did for this year's program on your recommendations from last year. So we do take your recommendations quite seriously and um, tell us what you'd like us to do and we'll try very hard to offer it. Now, today's program is made possible from support from the National Cancer Institute, Office of Cancer Survivorship and Office of Communications and Education, and the Livestrong Lance Armstrong Foundation. And it's their support that has enabled us to do this program this year and all these other years in the past as well. So we really want to thank them. Now, I want to introduce to all of you um, my uh, co-moderator on today's program, uh, Dr. Keith Belize. And Dr. Belize is a program director and health scientist in the Office of Cancer Survivorship at the National Cancer Institute. And Dr. Belize is going to say some words of welcome to all of you. Dr. Belize? Well, thank you, Carolyn, and welcome to our invited speakers and all the listeners who have joined us for today's workshop. It's truly an honor to be able to co-host the sixth annual Cancer Survivorship Teleconference Series focusing on the issues faced by survivors and their loved ones after treatment ends. As Carolyn noted, this is the first of three workshops in our 2008 Cancer Survivorship Series, and the National Cancer Institute, represented by the Office of Cancer Survivorship, the office I'm affiliated with, 
the Office of Communications and Education and NCI's Cancer Information Services, is really pleased to serve once again as an organizational partner and co-funder of this program. As some of you may know, the National Cancer Institute established the Office of Cancer Survivorship in 1996 in direct response to the articulate and compelling demand by, the, by cancer survivors in the advocacy community to better understand the unique and ongoing needs of this growing population. The overall goal of the office is to improve the length and quality of survivor for all those living with a history of cancer, a number which, according to recent figures, includes over 11 million individuals in the United States alone. And one of the ways the office achieves its mission is by participating in the development of educational materials and outreach activities such as this teleconference series that are designed to equip cancer survivors and their caregivers with the information they need to achieve optimal health and well-being after cancer. The survivorship series represents a series for which the number of participants has grown, has continued to grow across the years. Now, over the years, we've had participants from over two dozen countries on our calls, making our capacity to reach those in search of information truly global. Along with our program partners, we are deeply gratified by this response. At the same time, we recognize that the popularity of this series is a testament to the fact that for many cancer survivors, even though cancer treatment is over, the cancer experience is not. Now, the topics we have chosen for this year's teleconference series reflects themes that many survivors have told us present challenges for them as they make the transition from treatment to recovery. As you will hear shortly, our three outstanding speakers bring both personal and professional insight into the importance of follow-up care and recognize this aspect of cancer care as a critical component of long-term survivorship. Again, I'm delighted to be co-hosting this workshop with my colleague, Carolyn Mesner, to whom I will now turn the program over to. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Polizzi, and uh, thank you for your wonderful words of, of you know, inspiration to everybody on the call. And now we're going to hear some of our other speakers speak, and I'm going to introduce our first speaker, uh, Richard Biagin. And Richard is a cancer survivor. He's a nurse practitioner, Lance Armstrong Foundation Adult Survivorship Clinic, Perini Family Survivors Center, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. And Richard is really going to provide the survivor's perspective on today's program. Richard? Thank you. Um, I was honored to be asked to talk. Um, my story began back in 1996 when I was diagnosed with um, chronic myeloid leukemia and told that I needed a stem cell transplant to save my life. Um, well, in December of that year, I did have an unrelated donor stem cell transplant, and I'm doing very well today. Uh, obviously, I'm on this call. Um, but, you know, when I finished treatment, it was actually very scary because I felt like um, I was done with the active fighting of the cancer at that point. Um, and I felt after that, being discharged, it was like sitting and waiting to go to my regular visits, get the testing to see if my leukemia came back, um, and, you know, dealing with the side effects of my treatment. But it was really the unknown and feeling powerless um, that was very difficult for me as a patient. Because, um, it, because I was so scared and I did see that um, I was depressed as well at this time, I started to see a psychiatrist who really helped me through that tough time. And it was very important to understand for me that um, just to know that I was scared because I wasn't sure what was going to happen, as well as um, just feeling depressed. But I came to realize that after finishing my treatment that my cancer journey really wasn't over and it was actually just beginning. And what I mean by that is that um, when I was in treatment, as I said, I, I felt like I was doing something, but 
Uh, now as my job as uh, the nurse practitioner for the Lance Armstrong Clinic here at Dana-Farber, I really understand um, it's very important for survivors to remain actively involved in their care. Um, and that, that basically means that we need to continue an ongoing dialogue, communication with our providers, the, the oncologists, the hematologists, um, the nurse practitioners, and, your, and anyone involved in your care. Um, and really because I take care of survivors and help them to develop treatment summaries and follow-up guidelines that you'll hear more about in a minute, I figured actually that I probably should practice what I preach. Um, nobody really likes a hypocrite that says, do as I say, not as I do. But um, really why it's so important for follow-up care is um, because I knew that the treatment I had of the total body radiation and the high-dose chemotherapy uh, and then adding that I also have someone else's immune system in me, that um, that kind of mix can cause problems. Um, some happen right after treatment, uh, like I have, I have some decreased sense of touch in my fingertips, uh, which was um, a lasting effect from my chemotherapy, and also um, the inability to have children in the traditional way. Follow-up care is important because it can track, to track these issues over time, really to make sure that they don't get any worse and to make sure we're um, managing symptoms well because often, and I'm sure as we'll hear later, that um, a lot of survivors do have symptoms that um, are a constant reminder of um, what they've been through. Um, you know, other complications can happen later and, and as people are probably well aware, they're known as late effects. Um, and the key to follow-up care is knowing what you had for treatment and then having the knowledge of what might happen because of the treatment. And the only true way to do this is to have an ongoing dialogue with your um, provider. Um, you know, and it was important for me because I worked with my primary care doctor and my transplant doctor to really develop a plan to screen for anything that I, was, I might be at risk for, like thyroid problems because of the radiation or the low testosterone levels. Um, because, you know, because I did work with them and develop a follow-up plan, uh, it means that I'm, you know, taking a drug like Lipitor to lower my cholesterol levels because I may have some increased risk of clogged arteries because of some of the treatment. Um, and if I had never had treatment, perhaps we'd just be watching my cholesterol level. We're trying to be more proactive. Um, and when, <clears throat> excuse me, it's been over 11 years now uh, since my transplant, I'm doing well. But because of the follow-up plan that we had established, I, I had had an echocardiogram about a year ago, 10 years after my transplant, because of my past treatment history. And it showed that my heart was not functioning as well as it did before the transplant. Um, now, mind you, I preface this by saying I can run 10 miles without a problem uh, right now. And, but it was because of this screening that I am now being followed by a cardiologist and on a low dose of medication that helps to prevent further uh, decline in my heart function and uh, I'm again I have no symptoms I feel very well and want to emphasize that without a plan for my follow-up care I really wouldn't have um, done anything to look for my heart function until it had been decreased when I and, and I had symptoms and that might mean when my function was much worse um, it's really about being, you know, the, the, the real reason is getting a treatment summary and care plan. It, it gave me the knowledge that I needed, uh, you know, and it also helped me to realize that um, I'm not at risk for many of the things that I actually thought I might be. Um, that was probably the most comforting thing for me was sitting down with my providers and going through um, what the actual risks that I might have. And most of the things that I had had uh, in my mind 
uh, I didn't, I wasn't actually at risk for. In in a lot of ways, it felt like that same time when I finished um, my treatment and that unknown nature and and develop in, in developing the dialogue with your providers, it can help take away that unknown fear that um, that often a lot of us as survivors have. Um, you know, I would like everyone <clears throat> listening really that um, you can play an active role in your health, and it really is. Um, even more important because we're survivors of our cancer. And this means you do have control, although it isn't the most exciting thing, but diet, exercise, weight control, not smoking and drinking and drinking alcohol in moderation uh, can help prevent some of the health issues that many survivors might be at risk for. Um, you know, you'll now be hearing more in detail about treatment summaries, care plans, as well as follow-up care. And I just can't emphasize enough how much it is um, helped me to develop a roadmap and really will help you to manage your health, better health overall. I, again, I thank you for uh, listening to me. Well, Richard, thank you very much for really sharing your experiences and also for really setting the, the tone for today's program and the context and really so everybody can hear what your experience was like. And it resonates, I'm sure, for many people on the call in terms of really doing various things that can really help to um, enhance your health and well-being. So thank you very much, Richard. And I know we'll have questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you. Our next speaker is Dr. Thomas Smith. Dr. Smith is Professor and Chair, Division of Hematology, Oncology, and Palliative Care, Massey Cancer Center, Virginia Commonwealth University. And Dr. Smith is going to um, address um, your treatment summary, why it's important, um, your post-treatment side effects, and follow-up care with your oncologist and primary care doctor. Dr. Smith. Uh, thank you. It's, a, again, an honor to be here. First, for all our listeners, congratulations on being a survivor. I bet during the few dark weeks after diagnosis when you were facing surgery, chemo, radiation, and a life turned upside down through no fault of your own, you never thought you'd get here. But hey, here you are. Um, second, now it's time to demedicalize your life. We've medicalized it for months and use this as an opportunity for growth. A friend once told me, well, we call these events AFGOs, A-F-G-O's, another fantastic growth opportunity. Of course, you can substitute any F word you choose for fantastic, but if you see life as a series of another fantastic growth opportunity, it all sort of falls into place. It's time to pick up your life and get on with it, accepting that normal is now a very new normal. Third, as an oncologist, there are some specific things that I would request you do to help me for a best partnership. Number one, you do need follow-up care. You do need follow-up care. But you can choose the doctor who you want to follow you. There are several studies that show family physicians and other primary care doctors when they follow breast cancer patients have exactly the same rate of finding metastases and survival. But survivors need to have both parts of care, the oncologist specialist availability plus the primary care maintenance care. If you're followed just by the oncologist, you're less likely to get routine things done like pneumonia vaccine, colonoscopy, and cholesterol screening. If you're followed by the primary care doctor alone, you may lose the ability to get answers to fairly complex questions about genetics or PET scans or the best follow-up treatment. So you can pick one or two of your healthcare professionals you trust and keep good relationships with them. Someone you can trust so that if you get terrible hot flashes or if your left hip starts hurting and you're worried about recurrence, you can pick up the phone and call or email. Second, make a treatment summary or have your doctor download one and complete it for you. That's your roadmap. This is your diagnosis, your stage, sites where the disease was. That's important as these are the sites where it's most likely to return. 
the treatment drugs and doses, the radiation sites, the surgeries done, all this is readily transportable and it will very much help your other non-oncology healthcare providers. These, available, these are available on the American Society of Clinical Oncology's website, cancer.net, and a bunch of other web providers. For instance, if you've got adriamycin or Herceptin, you have a small but very real risk of heart damage for, for instance, about 1% to 4%. Once you get your treatment summary, send it to each of your doctors. Go ahead and ask your doctors for, your fax, for their fax numbers and fax it to each of them that's involved in your care. Then make a maintenance record, just like for your car. American Society of Clinical Oncology has these follow-up guides available, as I said. Make a list of what doctor to see when and what tests are required. So just like getting your oil changed every 3,000 miles, every three months get your CEA checked after colorectal cancer or a physician or nurse exam of your breasts. At 12,000 miles or 12 months, get that mammogram, colonoscopy, or CAT scans to rule out curable liver metastases if you had colon or rectal cancer. Do your regular maintenance. Make sure you get checked for colon cancer at age 50. Get checked for osteoporosis at age 50. Know your cholesterol number and your blood pressure number. Patients who have a primary care doctor and an oncologist are more, more likely to get this other important stuff done. It's very important to remember that most people with cancer these days are cured and are going to live a long time, so you've got to take care of yourself. Get your pneumonia vaccine. Get your shingles vaccine. Get your flu shot each, yearly, each year. For your doctors, you can help them by making a one-page summary with your contact information, your allergies, your current medications, and including supplements for each visit that you see them. We don't always have the ability to communicate easily by phone, fax, or email, and we may depend on you to help keep an updated medicine list. I ask my doctors if I can do email with them because it saves time and convenience for me. You are also in charge of your appointments. If you're a breast surgeon, oncologist, gynecologist, and radiation therapist all have you scheduled for visits within two weeks, don't be afraid to ask them to space them out. Rearrange so you see one of your doctors every three months, not all four of them. So there is a good chance that you're cured, but we just can't guarantee it. So that, that's important to take care of the rest of yourself. I'll repeat, exercise. I tell people to walk 20 minutes a day, five times a week. Definitely stop smoking. Eat a balanced, relatively low-fat diet. For breast cancer patients, the Women's Intervention Nutrition Study showed that women who reduced the fat in their diet from 50 grams a day to 30 grams a day lowered the risk of their breast cancer coming back. In some cases, the reduction was almost as much as chemo, and I can tell you it's a lot more pleasant. And for colon cancer, switching from the Western diet with lots of red meat, fried foods, and fats, the one with more vegetables and fruits, showed that the, the chance of the cancer coming back was lowered by almost a third. We don't, much, we don't have data yet on lung cancer, prostate cancer, leukemia, lymphoma, etc., but a good diet and some exercise cannot hurt you. And I would say please fill out an advanced directive, durable power of medical attorney, and organ donor card, just like everyone else. For me as an oncologist, it's important for you as a person to recognize there isn't any perfect or infallible follow-up scheme. In all nearly all cases, whether it comes back or not, it's not due to anything you or your doctor did or didn't do, but it's due to the biology of the cancer. For instance, we get CEA blood tests on colon cancer patients every three months for three years because that blood test finds potentially curable single metastases to liver or lungs. That's why we do it, because we can show it works. 
But for breast cancer patients, we don't have a similar test that we know works. Blood tests such as the CEA or CA272.29 tell us, tell us that you have cancer mistakenly about 3% of the time. They miss about half the obvious cancers and almost never, if ever, find curable metastases early in breast cancer. Right now, it's the same data with PET scans, CAT scans, bone scans, and routine labs. They just don't help find curable metastases and prolong life. We probably spend about a billion dollars a year as a country on tests like that that aren't very useful. At the same time, a study we did showed that 20% of women who've had breast cancer don't get a repeat mammogram in the two years after treatment. And that's critical because that could find a curable recurrence and it could find a new breast cancer. I say we concentrate on finding recurrences that make a difference. For me, in my practice, costs are increasingly a problem. I would ask that if you're having trouble paying for your medicines or your bills, please tell me. Please, please, please. Medicines are getting much more expensive. For instance, all the three aromatase inhibitors for breast cancer cost $260 a month at a minimum. I just prescribed somebody one dose of rituximab that cost $8,200. And the copays on things like this are going up too. Some of my patients reach their Medicare donut hole in the middle of the summer. Please don't just stop taking your medicines. Make sure you let your healthcare professionals know because there's sometimes easy ways to get free medicines or reduced cost medicines. That's about half of all the calls to cancer care and they can be extraordinarily helpful in finding ways to relieve the financial burden. Finally, tell your doctors and nurses about your concerns. I get a lot of questions about, is this cancer genetic? What should I tell my kids? What should I tell my sister or my brother? Some breast, colon, and GYN cancers clearly are. Ask if you should be referred to a colon genetic counselor for your sake or your, or your family's sake. If you want to know, ask what the chance of the cancer coming back is and where would it likely come back? What should you be monitoring? Lumps or bumps in the breast, bone pain that's new and persistent, headaches, trouble breathing. All this is available on those follow-up guides. And please, please, please tell me if you have symptoms that don't go away. Hot flashes are actually treatable. And I can tell you from personal experience that everyone will be happier if your hot flashes are better and you're getting some REM sleep. Bone pain in your hips and knees could be due to that aromatase inhibitor or it could be avascular necrosis of the hip. It's a rare complication of chemo. It doesn't absolutely need to be metastasis or cancer spread there. So I would urge that you don't stew about things for three months first. I know that's typically a guy thing. I figured I'd wait and see if I died from it first, but women can be pretty stubborn too. Please tell your doctors and nurses. So tell me, or even better, tell the nurses or nurse practitioner with whom I work. They're better listeners, and they'll get the important stuff to me. 90% of things they can probably fix on, this, on the spot. So that complete concludes my remarks, and I'm looking forward to what others have to say here. Thank you. Well, I want to thank you very much, Dr. Smith, for just an excellent presentation and really, um, really, really stressing the importance of the uh, importance of really talking and communicating with your healthcare team, with your doctor about follow-up care, and really giving very specific guidelines to everybody. So thank you very much. Really excellent. Our next speaker is Dr. Deborah Friedman. Dr. Friedman is Director of Survivorship Program, Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. And Dr. Friedman is going to talk about taking charge of your lives and health and Livestrong Survivorship Center of Excellence Network. Dr. Friedman? Thank you very much. Rich Boyoysian's 
poignant comments tell the story well for many cancer survivors. The cancer may be different, the long-term effects may be different, but what is important for every cancer survivor to think about is that cure is not enough. So I concur with all of his comments and those of Dr. Smith. As a cancer survivor who's completed active therapy, you are joining almost 11 million other cancer survivors living in the United States. Each year, more people benefit from early cancer detection and early and effective treatments, and this leads, has led to a remarkable increase in cure rates. And fortunately, we cure the majority of people who are afflicted with cancer in the United States. But as I said, cure is not enough. As a cancer survivor, you will face a new normal, and you may experience a variety of emotions and challenges, and Richard talked about them very poignantly. Survivors are often faced with concerns about what to worry about, about what not to worry about. Cancer treatment is very well-defined. Patients know exactly what to expect. Post-treatment care is also well-defined to monitor for relapse. However, follow-up for problems that are not oncologic, that are not the cancer itself, but may be related to the cancer and its therapy, is much less well-defined. And survivors can feel lost in the transition, moving from cancer to wellness. And thus, I would argue that all cancer survivors should seize the opportunity to partner with their healthcare providers and help take charge of their health and their lives. Some of the most common issues facing cancer survivors, but certainly not limited to, are, as I said, adjusting to a new normal that's different from what you had prior to the cancer diagnosis, worry about the future, fatigue, cognitive changes, often called chemo brain, which as physicians we understand very poorly, I might add, changes in sexual function or intimacy, problems with fertility, risk for medical problems related to the cancer treatment, such as those that Dr. Smith talked about, problems, for example, a rare problem with a heart related to some chemotherapy, job, school, or insurance difficulties, there are likely to be changes in interpersonal relationships with friends and colleagues and family. And of course, everybody worries about the risk for their cancer coming back or cancers. So what can you do to put all this in perspective and help take charge of your life? Well, first, it starts with understanding your, treat your cancer, its treatment, potential long-term complications, and preventive strategies to keep yourself healthy. Um, the previous speakers have outlined this very well, but be sure you have an established follow-up with both your oncologist and a primary care provider. And in fact, as you get further out from your cancer treatment, you will start to rely more on your primary care provider for some things and less on your oncologist. And at some point, for some cancers, you may not need follow-up by your oncologist, and all of your follow-up may be conducted by your primary care provider. This will be different for different people, and these are questions to ask your doctors. You may also need subspecialists involved in your care, but your primary care provider should always have all the information from all of these specialists so they can act as a type of care coordinator and gatekeeper so they know what's going on with your endocrine system, with, for example, with your heart, with your blood pressure, and with your cancer. However, 
for your primary care doctor to be of the greatest help to you, as well as your oncologist to be of the greatest help to you. You need to be vocal. You need to be able to clearly tell us what your concerns are. In addition, particularly for your primary care doctor to be of greatest help to you, they need to understand your cancer and its therapy. They need to get a baseline of what your health is like when you feel well. So if you come in and you have troublesome symptoms, they know that this is different from your normal. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to advocate for your health and to be as knowledgeable as possible. I can't reiterate enough how important and how essential a treatment summary is for all cancer survivors. As Dr. Smith explained, this will help you understand your cancer treatment. What is a treatment summary or a survivorship care plan? This is a document. It is could be a Word document, it could be a web-based document, it could exist in many forms, but what it should include is your cancer diagnosis. What was your cancer? What stage was it? When was it diagnosed? How old were you when you had it? Where were you treated and who are the people who treated you and how can other doctors contact them if they need to contact them? Treatment details. What chemotherapy did you get? Did you get radiation therapy? And if so, what was the dose and what were the fields? If you had surgery, what were those surgical procedures? Complications that you've had either during treatment or after treatment that have long-term implications. It's no longer important to know the re results of every complete blood count you had during therapy, but it is important for someone to know that you lost some hearing during treatment because that's going to have a long-term implication. It's important for that summary to outline the potential risks of treatment and where there are recommendations for screening or follow-up, that should be outlined as well. And of course, the important screening recommendations for cancer recurrence or new cancers. As you get further from your cancer therapy, these details are likely to become less precise in your mind. This is normal. However, it's essential for you to always have that information at hand. Today's society is very mobile. People move from place to place and often change healthcare providers several times. That treatment summary can act as your passport for future care no matter where your life takes you, and that information can always be at hand. So what do you do with that information you get from your treatment summary? Well. This information can help you advocate for your health care needs. Depending on your treatment, you may be at risk for health care problems that others your age do not typically face, and you may need special screening. This information can also help you decide what symptoms might be suggestive of a more serious problem. But it's also important, as Richard expressed so well, for survivors to know what you're not at risk for and what you don't need to be worried about. You also, all survivors need a realistic view of the expected recovery from their cancer and their therapy and how to help them adjust to the nor new normal. You may experience challenges getting your previous life back, and that is important to recognize, and you've got to give yourself a break and, and create a balance between moving forward and giving yourself some time to recover. As you enter the long-term survivorship 
period, this is going to become more and more important to seek that balance between going on with your lives, trying to leave the cancer behind, but being knowledgeable about that cancer and giving yourself the time you need. All cancer survivors should receive regular oncology and regular primary care. However, due to the unique needs for cancer survivors, sometimes they also need specialty services, therapeutic interventions such as PT, OT, lymphedema therapy, mental health services, specialized reproductive services, and may benefit from a dedicated survivorship program. So what is a survivorship program? A survivorship program is a dedicated program that has resources for survivorship issues that may arise and allows a realistic description of recovery from cancer and what to expect when. And it really acts as a bridge from acute oncology care to primary care. All survivors should receive a comprehensive evaluation after completing their cancer treatment so they understand the long-term physical and emotional problems they face after cancer treatment. Other services provided by a survivorship program include coordination between oncology and primary care services, referrals to subspecialists like psychology, genetics, therapy, nutrition, social work, vocational rehabilitational therapy, educational information on physical, emotional, and daily living issues specific to cancer survivors, navigation to locate community and web-based resources, educational classes, and events. This is just a snippet of what a survivorship program can be. Survivorship is now recognized as an important area to focus on in the cancer care continuum. And with this recognition, more oncologists are offering specialized services to their survivors. So speak with your oncologist and see what might be available to you. If you are a survivor of pediatric cancer or a parent of a pediatric cancer survivors, most childhood cancers programs offer specialized survivorship care. Some continue to see their survivors into their adult years, while others transition adult survivors to primary care providers. Information about these programs can be obtained from the National Cancer Institute, Cancer Care, the Lance Armstrong Foundation, or the Children's Oncology Group. And you can always check with your childhood cancer center where you were treated or your child's been treated. Programs for adults are much less common. And to meet these <coughs> excuse me, specific needs of these cancer survivors, the Lance Armstrong Foundation elected to harness the expertise of several NCI comprehensive cancer centers and develop the Livestrong Survivorship Center of Excellence Network. This is a unique and unprecedented consortium focused on cancer survivorship locally and nationally. There are eight centers within this network, and each center has several community affiliates. Together, these centers and affiliates can provide a variety of clinical services, health education, advocacy, and access to research. Together, these centers are also working, together, working to develop best practices, research initiatives, and educational projects focused on the specific needs of the cancer survivors. The centers of excellence in this network are the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Ohio State Cancer Center, University of North Carolina Chapel Hill Cancer Center, the University of Pennsylvania Cancer Center, the Cancer Center at the University of Colorado, and the University of California in Los Angeles. 
Some of these centers offer services only to patients treated at their centers, while others offer services to a broader population. Services will differ across centers. However, all of these centers can serve as important resources for survivors and healthcare providers, and we encourage survivors to contact a center nearest to them to learn more about this. To learn more about the Livestrong Survivorship Center of Excellence Network and its members, you can go to the Lance Armstrong Foundation website and get more information. I hope this brief introduction has been helpful, and I would be happy to answer any questions you might have. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Freeman, for a very expert and compassionate presentation and really identifying the centers that people can go to in terms of survivorship centers and also in terms of the importance of coordinated care. And I know we're going to have lots of questions um, during the Q&A. Well, we now do have lots of time for questions. I'm going to ask uh, Mary to bring all of our speakers on board, and I'm going to ask her to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. I'm going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. If we don't get to answer your question during the next part of this call, please do call at the end of the call, call Cancer Care, and we'll be happy to try to answer your questions at that point. But we're going to try to take as many as possible at this point. Mary? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press the one key on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Our first question comes from Jeff. Hey, good afternoon. Um, the second speaker talked about um, um, getting a treatment summary. And he said you could download the information from, I believe it was the American Society of Clinical Oncologists. Is that correct? Right, cancer.net. Cancer.net. Exactly what's involved with that again? It'll give you a form that either you or your doctor or both of you can fill out that will have your name, your date of birth, all your identifying information, but a place to list your medical problems, the type of disease you had, where it spread to, the chemotherapy drugs you received, and the, the total doses that might make a difference in your risk of heart problems, for instance, then radiation therapy, and what surgeries you had. And that can then serve as a permanent record so that if you move from Minneapolis to Florida and want to go see another doctor, you can take that in and say, well, 14 years ago I was treated with these drugs and this is what happened to me. So the, the new doctor won't have to search around. Um, and with as many people thankfully living as long as they are now, you're going to outlive the medical memory for a lot of your treatments. If I have patients who got treated more than seven years ago and I go to find out what their radiation therapy doses or their drugs were, the hospital or health system may not be keeping those records or it may take weeks and weeks to retrieve them from microfiche files. So you can now become the, the living repository um, of your information. That'll tell me what your risk of, say, leukemia is or what's your risk of heart problems or what's your risk of having a low testosterone level or, or the risk of a low thyroid level, which we see a couple people each year who've had parts of their thyroid gland irradiated and they come in really slowed and feeling terrible and nobody knew that, and they didn't know that they had their thyroid gland radiated. It's easy to fix. Excellent. Thank you, Jeff, for that wonderful question. Okay. Next question. Our next question comes from Ralph. Uh, um, I'm currently uh, with a urologist, and uh, 
other than uh, Lupron after some doubling time. Uh, that's the only thing I've received. No uh, radiation and no chemo. And we're in a holding pattern, it seems. Your my, question, Ralph? Uh, my question is, uh, should I be doing anything else, or is the urologist doing enough with a PSA of 0.04? Dr. Smith, would you like to address that? Sure. I would say I would be going way out on a limb to make a recommendation based on just what you told me. I, I think that's between you and your urologist, and that's not my area of expertise at all. I will say, if you ever have questions about something, please go and get a second opinion. As a practicing oncologist, um, I will not be offended if somebody says, you know, I, I like you, Tom, but I'd like to get a second opinion. If your doctor gets really defensive about you getting a second opinion, um, that's probably a good reason to go get a second opinion. <laughs> That's an excellent question, Ralph, and I, I think yeah. that um, I know many of you have, uh, please you know, go ahead and ask the questions. Understand that our speakers will answer them in a general way, but hopefully you'll get some general guidelines from that. So um, if you continue to have that question, you might want to ask your treating physician and then consider a second opinion um, as yeah, well. Yeah, we, we put together a whole panel of prostate cancer experts, and I don't know that there are sufficient data to tell you what to do in, exactly in your situation, but luckily it's not a terrible situation to be in. Sorry. Thank you. Thank you. And our next question? Our next question comes from Nora. Yes. Thank you. Hi. Can you hear me clearly? Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Oh, good. Sorry. I'm afraid. I'm on my way to a doctor's appointment right now. Um, I, I have a question that might be tangential, but, it, but it's really bothering me and it's really important. And that is that um, I have insurance. I have COBRA insurance, which I pay out of my own pocket right now. And it's going to be ending in December. And my insurance company is telling me they, they're trying to triple my rates because I had cancer, and I won't be able to afford insurance after this. And I want to be able to continue following up with my physicians. They're excellent physicians. I've gone through radiation. I've gone through surgery. I've gone through uh, chemotherapy with these physicians. And I'm not sure what to do at this point. I was wondering if anybody had any suggestions. Well, Nora, actually, I'm, uh, this is Carolyn Mester from Cancer Care. I want to thank you for that excellent question. I think it's probably a question that many people have. I know Dr. Smith mentioned about the costs, of, of course, being treated for cancer. Um, in terms of your specific situation and anyone else who's really in the midst of trying to figure out how to pay for their care in the midst of a COBRA, um, do call Cancer Care. We do have a number of direct financial programs and help in terms of figuring that out for each of you as individuals. So do uh, use that resource because we, um, that is a, a service that we do offer. Now I'm going to open this if any other speakers want to address this, but we definitely want you to be sure that you continue some type of coverage. That's very important. And so and since you, um, it's very important that you work with someone who can help you to be sure that continues. This is Tom Smith. Uh, thank you, Carolyn, for directing people to cancer care. But, um, I would also say, let's say the worst case scenario is you simply can't afford insurance. Ask your doctor or your doctor's office if they can see you at a very reduced fee or for free. I mean, follow-up care is extraordinarily inexpensive compared to the thousands and thousands of dollars that 
chemotherapy and radiation therapy and surgery costs, a 20-minute follow-up visit should be something that the doctor's office should be able to continue to provide even if you can't pay. And most oncologists I know um, are more than happy to provide that service, particularly for somebody that they've taken care of and now has, through no fault of their own, gotten a tripling in their insurance rates and can't buy it. So don't be afraid to call up your oncologist's office or your primary care physician's office or your surgeon's office and say, look, I want to keep going to see um, Dr. Grover, but um, I can't afford it. Can she still see me anyway? Chances are they'll say, of course. Thank you. Our next question. Our next question comes from Diana. Hi, good afternoon. Um, I had a question. Dr. Smith, you had mentioned filling out an advanced directive and an organ donor card. Um, prior to my diagnosis, I did fill out my organ donor card. And are they going to want my organs now? I've got metastatic <laughs> uterine cancer. Um, the answer is your your corneas, you know, if you get in a car wreck and something bad happens to you, even some things like your corneas may, may still be usable. Um, which can bring the vision you know, sight to two whole people who didn't have it before. They're probably not going to want or be able legally to use internal organs, but corneas are typically okay. So, thank you for that excellent question. And again, mm -hmm. um, certainly uh, you know, discuss that with your treating healthcare team. Um, it sounds like this is something that's important to you and it's important to many people on this call. And um, to be sure that um, you're not uh, don't have misinformation, that you have information that really is of value to you, so that you can make the best decision. So, um, thank you. Excellent question. Our next question. Our next question comes from Cynthia. Yes, I'm wondering. Um, no one has addressed the fact that with uh, this reoccurring brain tumor that I've had and the uh, chemo that I've undergone, I have excessive muscle fatigue, and I want to know if there's any statistic as to how long this lasts. Maybe it is permanent. Maybe it's going to be three years before. Uh, if I do some excessive uh, amount of um, lifting or, or housework or anything for, let's just arbitrarily say, 20 minutes, then I have to do an hour's worth of uh, resting to recoup from my muscle fatigue. That's really such an excellent question, mm -hmm. Cynthia. It's actually mm -hmm. come up on many of our programs. So thank you for that excellent question. I'm going to ask our speakers to address it in a general way in terms of the concept of fatigue. And then uh, I hope you'll take that information back, of course, to your treating healthcare team around your specific need. Um, this is Rich Boyage now. Yes. The, uh, it, it, the question would be, um, I wonder, it depends on what type of treatment um, and if, if perhaps you had radiation and things like that, that there, there's, fatigue is multifactorial in regards to um, how, are, how are your sleep patterns. Um, your hormone levels could be greatly affected depending on what types of treatment you had um, involving the brain. Um, that, that it may um, be something to discuss with your um, oncology provider whether an evaluation of your endocrine system or seeing an endocrinologist would be worth the while. I mean, it, it really, 
I think as Dr. Smith had said before, it's really something to really talk to your provider about the, and um, should you go for more follow-up or additional testing, um, or there may be that um, you're still recovering. Some people can be anemic, and there's many reasons for fatigue, I guess, and it's better suited for on an individual basis to see the provider you're familiar with in regards to that um, and uh, following up with them. This is Deborah Friedman. I completely concur. Um, fatigue is probably the most common complaint that we hear in our survivorship program from many, many cancer survivors treated for many, many different kinds of cancer. And this concept about particularly their muscles feeling weak or their feeling deconditioned is very common. Um, I concur with Rich completely that the first thing you want to make sure is that there's not a very clearly treatable physiologic problem that's causing this. In most cases, there's not, but in a, but in a small percentage of cases, there is, and if it is, that's an easy fix. Unfortunately, for this more pervasive fatigue that many cancer survivors face, there's not an easy fix, but there are lots of things that can be tried. So I would encourage you to talk to your healthcare provider about this. This is one of the things that a survivorship program handles very nicely because we think about what are the various ways we can address fatigue um, for patients. There's also exceptionally wonderful information from Cancer Care on fatigue from the Lance Armstrong Foundation on their websites. There's lots of great educational information about fatigue and some of the ways that um, survivors have, felt help, have found helpful to manage that fatigue. Yeah, Cynthia, you ask a great question because we actually have um, done, you know, this is our sixth year doing this series, and we had done a, a particular workshop on the, the question that you've asked, and it actually is available on our um, on our website as a podcast that you can listen to it, and I'm happy to talk to you um, after the call to help you link to that, but for all of you listening to the calls, these calls happen in real time, but we also have this whole history of programs that we've done that you can listen to and really address in detail the question that Cynthia asked in, in terms of an hour program. So that might be helpful additional information. So thank you. Um, these are wonderful questions. I have to say it's a great audience. Our next question, yeah. please. Our next question comes from Bernice. Oh, hi. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Uh, my question has been touched upon a little bit, but I just want to expound on it, and that was regarding the um, treatment summary, which really sounds like a fantastic thing. But it looks like, in my case, I think I had like six doctors, and including the, the gynecologist who started all this. It, is it better to ha perhaps once I download the form, which I haven't seen yet, is to get each one of those doctors to complete the form? Or am yes. I supposed to, like, yeah. maybe send that same form around to all of them? Or Great question, Dr. Smith. Great question. It'd be better if you had one person or yourself to make a first go at it. So there's not a treatment summary for each disease yet. I, I think there will be within the year for all the common diseases. But there's a general treatment summary which you can download. And then you can fill in a lot of it and any of your other, other doctors can fill in parts of it. It also doesn't have to be filled in right away. So if you're on a, a circuit writing where you see your gynecologist and your radiation therapist and your surgeon and your medical oncologist in the space of a year, you can just ask them or their office staff to, to fill it out at those visits. It doesn't have to be done right now. 
Um, this is Deborah Friedman. I'd like to add that if there's a survivorship program um, that is um, local to you um, that's accepting patients that maybe weren't treated um, in that facility, this is a service that all of the survivorship programs in the Livestrong Survivorship Center of Excellence Network, um, as well as, for example, all the survivorship programs treating pediatric cancer survivors provide. For example, what we do here is for patients who weren't treated at the Hutchinson Cancer Research Center or the University of Washington, we actually get a release of information from the survivor and get all of those records and sent to us. And then our program nurse practitioner puts together that treatment summary for the patient. And when the patient comes in for a visit, goes over it with them. So you might want to see if you might be eligible for one of those programs. Exceptional model. Thank you. That's very, and hopefully, Bernice, that's helpful to you, and that you, we, we can help you with that. So, thank you. Our next question. Our next question comes from Chris. Um, hi. Uh, can you guys hear me? Yes, we can. Yeah, yes. Mm -hmm. Chris, yes. Um, I, my oncologist is retiring um, in June, and so I, I finished my treatments, um, but it sort of makes me nervous that that um, I'll have to change doctors and find someone new and he won't be available. So I was wondering if you had any advice on going through that transition. Oh, that's such an important qu question. Thank you, Chris. Um. Well, I think, start, Deborah Friedman, I think it's, I think um, one of the things that it will be very important is to get that treatment summary that we've talked about, um, preferably before your doctor retires, so that'll be easy. And talk to your doctor about those feelings. Talk to the, your doctor about how, con how concerned you are and how worried you are, um, and ask them to help you transition your care to another oncologist. This is Tom Smith. I'm, I'm not a cancer survivor, although I have been seriously ill, so I have some understanding of this. One of the points our first speaker made was getting depressed after treatment. And I find that very common. When you're doing things against the cancer, you are actively participating and keeping it from coming back. And then suddenly you're just left all on your own and all your support system evaporates and you're supposed to go back to being exactly the same person you were before, but life's now completely changed for you and just the rest of the world hasn't caught up with it yet. So end of treatment depression is very common. Um, end of treatment worries are even more common. I also, as a breast cancer doctor, see a lot of end of treatment post chemotherapy rheumatism, a, coin, a, a term coined at the Mayo Clinic, six to eight to 12 weeks after treatment, um, where people get stiff and achy and think that their cancer has come back, but it's just their immune system sort of reconstituting and their joints getting stiff. So, again, talk to your oncologist about that, and I suspect that he or she probably has some orderly plans for transition and will be sending your records to someone else. So, Chris, we really want you to make an appointment with your doctor who's retiring before they retire and have a long conversation with them, and hopefully some of this information you can implement with them and get that treatment summary. That's really, I hope that's helpful to you, Chris. Thank you. Our next question. Our next question comes from Lisa. Oh, hi. Um, I was wondering, I, I think I understood you to say that um, PET scans, oh, I'm sorry, it, in reference to the recurrence of a, met, you know, a metastasis, a recurrence of breast cancer perhaps, that PET scans, CAT scans weren't really reliable. Am I correct with that? And if so, what, what are tests to ask for? Well, the, 
This is Tom. Um, we've had a group at the American Society of Clinical Oncology that's been studying this for about 15 years, and most other groups, including the National Comprehensive Cancer Center Network, have pretty much the same guidelines that after breast cancer, the most important curable things to find are a new cancer on the other side or a recurrence in the same breast if you had lumpectomy and radiation. And unfortunately, the data for PET scans, ultrasounds of the liver, bone scans, and blood tests so far is that they don't lead to finding more early curable detectable or finding early curable spots of where the cancer has come back. Part of that is the technology that for something to be to show up on a CAT scan or a PET scan, it has to be about a pencil eraser sized or bigger to show up. And by that time, it's likely that there's more than one spot. The big things that we can honestly recommend that are proven useful are mammography, mammography, mammography. And I would add maintaining the rest of your life so that you reduce your risk of stroke and heart attack and high cholesterol and diabetes. Excellent. Well, you know, I want to thank all of our speakers today. You've really been, this has been an extraordinary call. You know, we've been doing these calls for a number of years now, but this has been really an extraordinary call. I want to thank all of you um, for your expertise and compassion and your actually communication skills, really wonderful role models of communication, which is what today's program was about. And I also want to thank all of our participants who have asked such really great questions. I think we've taken more questions on this call than we've ever taken on one of our survivorship programs. So I want to thank you all for asking such really wonderful questions. And again, if we did not get to your question, please call us afterwards. Um, I also want to thank all of you who've been listening. I want to remind you that this is a one-hour education program and that in planning a program like this, we recognize that you all have many needs that go far beyond the scope of a one-hour program. And that's why we have this collaborative effort with all of the different organizations that you have material and information about so that you can be in touch with all of us to follow up with any questions or concerns that you may have. Most importantly, we don't want anyone to feel you're alone with your question or your concern, that you now have a whole network or community of support that's out there and that you simply can call any of us or you can um, use our websites to contact us and get additional information. So please do take advantage of that. Um, again, um, we're all here for you. These are free services and we want you to really take advantage of them. I also want to remind you that we do have a part two coming up actually on May 13th. Um, and that program is called Rediscovering Intimacy in Your Relationships Following Treatment. So um, if you haven't already signed up for that, please do. And also, again, I'm going to just remind all of you to, to do please send in your, your evaluations, your feedback, because we're starting to think about our programs for next year. And to some extent, your feedback for each of these programs will really shape what we do next year. So please tell us what you want, and we'll try very hard to implement it. Now, I want to thank you all for participating today. And again, if you have a question that didn't get answered, please feel free to call Cancer Care at 1-800-813-HOPE. Our staff are there to help you, as well as all the other organizations are here to help you as well. I want to thank you all for participating today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the program. You may disconnect and have a wonderful day.